everybody welcome back to beats rye and types your favorite podcast about music food and programming um <laughs> i don't know why i did that um today we're here with justin searles who's in in cincinnati right is that right no yeah. way I'm, no? I'm i'm in columbus ohio columbus that's very which is the only ohioan city i can recommend people okay live in. all right Completely wrong, Ohio. Anything, anything west of New Jersey is is something else to me. So I don't. To, I don't to, yes, know. To, to the audience, I'm in flyover <laughs> country. <laughs> just kidding. I'm sure. I'm sure, Columbus is very nice. You were just listening to a track that Justin picked out from an album called IBM 1401, a user's manual, um, and the track is called "The Sun's Gone Dim and the Skies Turned Black" by. Um, Johan Johansson and Justin picked this track and he said it represents his general feelings about about programming. So is that true? What is it, what what's the what's the story? Oh, there? I, I love I love programming. Uh, I think <laughs> uh, we live in this time. I think of just irrational exuberance and people being really excited about making stuff. Uh, and I think that's great. And we've got a lot of new beginners coming into the industry because it's just a hot market to be in. I feel sometimes. Like somebody needs to be the voice of, hey, let's slow down and think hard about how we're doing things. And it's very difficult to get lost in the sea of, you know, people shouting capital T, capital F, the future, you know, like and that if I have any, you know, dissenting opinions or ideas about how people might move more carefully or design things more thoughtfully, then, of course, I'm anti the future. And <laughs> that's one reason why I think I might get pegged as a, a, a negative person or a cynic, especially when people see me tweeting about technology. It's it's really, really easy to get swept up. Right. That's the hard part. And I feel I feel kind of similar sometimes. And I'm sure Mike, too, that we feel like some kind of times the Abe Simpsons uh, shaking their fists at the cloud type thing about everything that's going on and and programming it. I don't want to feel like I'm the old guy. Because five years ago, I was the cool young guy (laughs) excited about Ruby and everything. So it's kind of crazy now to having gone through a couple large projects. All the timelines are truncated. You used to have to spend 30 years to be the old crotch DI in the room. (laughs) Now you're you're out of a boot camp in 12 weeks and three years in, you're basically like checking your your 401k every couple days to see when it's time (laughs) to get out. Yeah. Or just, or just <laughs> like I, like I did just moving up to the mountains and saying, fuck it, mm-hmm. just disappearing off the face of the planet. Yeah. One of the, one of the reasons I was excited to have you on is related. Actually, we, I saw your talk at the, at RubyConf last year, you gave like a keynote about open source and, um, what the, the potential downsides, I guess there are and what the downsides, especially on a personal level are. And that was, I appreciated that a lot because I've not only felt that firsthand, but also, you know, I really feel like only more recently have people started really talking about that. It's not all fluffy kittens and, and thumbs up and plus ones. There's like something else behind 
a lot of these projects and that something else is usually a human being and that human being is usually not the most appreciated person in the Mm -hmm. scope of in the scope of these projects. So, I mean, one of the things we also talked about recently, too, is we talk a lot about questions and about problems and we ask a lot of questions about what the solutions might be, but we don't necessarily have a lot of solutions ourselves. Do you feel like it's been a, a bit of almost a year, I guess, since you gave that talk? I mean, have you I think you left kind of with like, here are some problems and here are some we should be talking about this. But I don't think you really had a like game plan for how we should approach this. Have you have you thought about that a little more or um So uh uh it's a one of those do as I say, not as I do things, right? Where you know it's a, I'll tell everyone it's a lot easier to tear something down than to create something and build something. And always need to be on guard against just kind of being a cynic, being a critic and saying, hey, this sucks out there. Sorry, I don't have enough time to fix it. Just have to let you know that your baby's ugly. Gotta go. <laughs> uh, and that's kind of how that talk ended up, simply because there was such a long airing of grievances needed uh, to really make the case that there's some systemic problems in open source. Uh, a couple interesting things have happened, uh, none of them huge. Uh, one of them is probably the single biggest impact that I've had on the Ruby community uh, in my decade of on-again, off-again Rubyist stuff, and that is that when you type bundle install, <laughs> some... Somebody uh, sent a pull request without my knowledge, right? Like within a day of that talk. And what it'll do is it'll actually name the number of uh, installed gems uh, that you asked for, as well as count all of the transitive dependencies that you asked for, which is one of the recommendations I made in the talk to kind of make people aware of just how many things are underfoot. And uh, that got into Bundler. So if you have a recent copy of Bundler, half of one log statement (laughs) <laughs> was influenced by me, uh, and uh, that's going to be what I put, you know, on my tomb, on my obit. The other thing I think is, um, I've people who've seen the talk and people who've talk about this kind of stuff uh, have started coming to me for personal advice about how to deal with like their own projects and managing them and managing burnout. And so uh, it's not like a broad, sweeping, systemic change so much as. Uh, A lot of people are coming to me for almost like permission to let go of their projects. Uh, I can help provide uh, ideas and feedback for how to like grow a community proportionally as a project gains adoptance. Uh, Adoptance, is that a word? Adoption. Acceptance. Acceptance. New words. Yeah. So as it gains adoptance, you want to grow a community around it so that it can handle uh, all of the sort of support requests and stuff. Or... Even just, you know, um, acknowledge that if the way that people are using your code isn't commensurate with the reason that you made it in the first place, it's okay to just say no. Uh, it's okay to, it's okay to you know, invite people to fork it and, and carry it on and, 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 and represent their interests, which might be divergent from yours. In my own personal practice, I've just kind of, I've written a lot of open source in the last year, but I've been f- less focused on solving other people's problems as just scratching our own itches. You know, sort of writing like a... Uh, a time tracking and activity tracking system for our agents at test double because we do consulting that like really fits our process like a glove it's all open source but most people probably don't care you know no other businesses are using it and expecting free technical support from me and that's been really liberating i wrote a silly little emoji to ruby transpiler called emo ruby (laughs) (laughs) and i went out of my way uh in 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 thinking of like oh i'd like to make this and one of the questions I ask myself now is, could a business ever conceivably want this? And 
if the answer is no, then I'm much more likely to actually, you know, go through with open sourcing it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's like a George Costanza opposite, do the opposite of, yes. of whatever you do to make it right <laughs> kind of approach to, to open sourcing projects. Absolutely. I like that. Yeah, one of the the interesting things from that talk for me at least was like just acknowledgement and from from the conversation I would say that surrounded b- before and after it is just this acknowledgement that there's a huge amount of work that businesses demand from individuals who are not necessarily the people who are going to benefit the most from that work. Uh, And being like, and we've talked a little bit about this on the podcast in general, but just this idea that there's kind of an imbalance there and there's not really like things like Patreon and, and get tip and things like that are trying to like, you know, monetize that imbalance. But there's definitely like, there's still a big, big difference there. And I don't know if there's, I don't, I also don't have the solution to it, but it's interesting to, to, to think about as well. Well, when we, uh, somebody, uh, Steve Klavnik had found, cause he's the guy who reads Hacker News for me. Uh, so Steve Klavnik <laughs> is on Hacker News and he found a quote that I loved that was somebody's in a rando comment was like, you know, open source is essentially at this point, a corporate welfare program. I think that just popularizing that notion that businesses are getting something for free and they're not giving back. As programmers working at companies, we are the last line of defense. We are the people with the keyboards actually pulling the stuff and implementing it. Uh, and a lot of it falls on us to decide like what is fair use and entitled, like 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 like, like the ones with the sense of the entitlement opening up, you know, GitHub issues that do nothing but tear down a maintainer and make them feel bad are often being opened by programmers at big companies. And so if we can just win programmers over and be like, hey, look, there's a human on the other side here, that's enough to bring this broad-based change, even if you're not necessarily converting big enterprises into this hippy-dippy notion that, you know, we're all a big potato commune growing open source together. So that, that that's my sense. And I think that things are getting better, uh, marginally. But it's it's not... It's one of those things that's not going to happen. Nothing like that's going to happen overnight. Just like open source in general, like infiltrating. The funny thing is that open source in general, like in a lot of cases, only made it to the enterprise in the past like 10 years or so, or maybe 15, at least in the way we know it. I'm sure that that wasn't the only reason that it kind of turned into a somewhat bad scene in some cases for some of the people who are like trying to do the actual work of giving away free software. Well, I think that but, a lot of a lot of those issues were there, but they were latent because at the same time that I was starting to publish open source, I was also trying to convince businesses that it was safe to use open source. And so I was sure. very careful like not to criticize it. It's this good thing. Just use it. Let me use it. It's going to be fine. But now that open like every company runs on open source, I think that's opened the door to us finally being more critical of it, critical of like the systemic issues at play like the fact that like half the world's companies run on like all these single points of failure and a lot of them were just white dudes on one rando weekend who did this stuff uh, and then and then and then completely left it alone forever uh, so there's this really interesting series of criticisms that we can make about open source writ large now that the world is addicted to open source we aren't afraid anymore of you know, you, you can't, re, you know, put the genie back in the bottle. Like, like, like open source is just going to be the new found, like this layer of sediment and this history of software forever. Uh, so so I'm, I'm excited, actually, about the beginnings of a lot of those conversations and how we can make things better. It's definitely not obvious to a lot of people uh, that this that this so-called 
or that this problem exists. I agree that it's definitely a problem. It's not a so-called problem. It's an actual problem. It's not obvious to a lot of people <laughs> that it exists. I haven't, well, I haven't seen, I haven't seen the talk in question that you guys are talking about, but I'm, I'm extrapolating the themes from, uh, your, your discourse here, which is <laughs> what I, what Rever- basically, reverse engineering, reverse engineering. Basically what my job that- is as a podcast, uh, co-host. <laughs> But pointing out, pointing out, and criticizing, and being part of the being part of a critical voice, I think it, it it is actually important, and it isn't always the job of the critic to have a solution for everything, right? Like you don't, if you are being critical of some social institution uh, that you think is behaving in a way that isn't isn't on the up and up, or you know, tends toward oppressive and uh, terrible behavior. It's not always clear how to how to fix those things, and it's not really your job as someone who's being oppressed by some some other larger organization to like fix that organization so it's nicer to you. An interesting question to ask, and I think something that's interesting that Justin said was, I uh, found some peace in pursuing side projects that didn't kind of have that weight of commerce on them, um, at least from the outside. So that that sounds like a that sounds like a solid piece of advice to give to people in general who are kind of feeling that the burnout of that. Um, but I think, and one thing that Aaron and I have been talking about lately is the great impact that fostering a small community and leading by example in that community and like having a positive community to point to is a way to make positive impact, I think, on the, on the culture that, you know, you're, you're associated with. We try to do that. I mean, we're, we're, we're trying to do that with this little like community of podcast listeners and, and trying to like make things about, we want to be critical of the, we want to be critical of systems that we uh, observed and participate in and critical of our own uh, behavior and its impact on those systems and our local communities and software communities. But we also want to, you know, be really happy and talk about how much we, we like cool music or whatever. I think, I think Michael, you actually teed it up to like exactly how I frame it, which is, look, you have to look at the global system to identify the broad-based criticisms that are, or critiques that are appropriate. Like, so like I look at the big whole world of open source out there and these are the patterns that I see. And when I share that message, you know, some people will, it'll resonate with, and we find like a small community around you know, just that. It may not be fixable writ large, like we're not going to change the universe overnight, but like the 20 or so other people that we have a test double, what we're doing is working closely with client developers, publishing open source, contributing back to open source, thinking like, hey, this library isn't really critical to what this company does. Maybe we can share this with others and help other people out. Uh, teaching ourselves, practicing ourselves, and also teaching others like good habits about being good open source citizens is an impact that we can have on if not, you know, tens of thousands of developers, then definitely over the course of this business's history, hundreds of developers. And if, if enough people kind of get on that train, it can definitely bend the curve, you know, long term. I think someone, I think Steve Kalabnik that you mentioned, uh, who we should have on the show at some point also, he's a great example because he just, he really is capable of producing excellent documentation and is so excited about producing it and sharing it with people that he is 
kind of a living example of what a contributor and a maintainer can and should look like. So even though his discord, even though his critiques are extreme and he, you know, he he's obviously like like a lot of us, like a politically radicalized person that says a lot of things that wouldn't normally be like popular um, opinions. I think it's so much easier to swallow what he has to say sometimes because, you know, he actually spends so much time like doing all of this shit that no one wants wants to spend their time doing if it's his job or if it's or if it isn't you know i mean even even if it's his job to like write a write a rust book or write documentation for a programming language like who wants to fucking do that you know <laughs> like no one wants to do that and like clarify it's very challenging i mean it's not only it's not just grunt work it's really hard you know i mean and, and it's cool for him because it's a skill he wants to build and he's building it and that's great but being able to do things like to to go up and down that stack i think is really cool where he has to like read the source or talk to the implementer of like a given concurrency primitive in this like super futuristic spaceship programming language that is rust and figure out how that works and then not only internalize it that's where most of us stop right yeah we'd like we're like proud because we learned a hard thing but then being able to communicate it and thinking about different ways of framing it and and trying to participate by making things easier to digest i think that that I don't really know exactly what point I was making, but I think that I think what I'm trying to say is that <laughs> it sounds really good. That's what we that's what we tr I think that's that's what I think. It's good advice for people who who want to uh, I think be like Steve is pretty good advice. Well, so so a thought that I had about that is that we talk about Ruby, the Ruby community, and we talk about programming communities, but then we also talk about teams and uh, companies as a culture, right? We talk about this idea of company culture, and there's like this common thread between both of them, or as both of them as they grow, which is that the second generation or third generation or fourth generation or down the road of people who are introduced to these communities or company cultures are often, if the intention of bringing them on board and bringing them into the community isn't, there isn't a clear intention or there isn't a clear work to do that, then often then that kind of dissipates the true central core of whatever the community is. And I think that our company culture is, and I think that people like Steve and we talk about people like in the Ruby community, we always have talked about Matt's and mini Swan and that whole thing. And this idea that there's like this core of the community who are nice people and who are like good to each other and like are respectful of everyone's opinions. I think the same thing happens in both of those scenarios, a company and probably happens at large at in, in terms of like societies. But if, there's not a way to like communicate not only how something works to other people like what steve's doing but the intentions behind it and why people should be nice to each other then often that gets lost and then you end up in these situations like we're talking about the bad the bad times of you know people making nasty completely irrelevant comments on pull requests and stuff like that where no those people are were added or were brought into this not maybe weren't invited, but are part of this community, but didn't have that same, maybe came from a different avenue, whatever it is, and didn't have that same intentional initiation process that maybe some of us had in the Ruby community. Or when you're like fifth generation in a company, maybe you don't have that same, that same kind of respect or knowledge of what, what came before you, you know what I mean? And so it's like, 
it's interesting because I saw that happen in Ruby a lot and just being aware of maybe not the reasons or the solutions, but being aware that there is like this general problem. And it's not just a Ruby problem. It's definitely a JavaScript problem. It's definitely a general programming community problem of like how when you're creating these I don't want to say intentional community because that means something completely different. But when you're creating these communities and grow, trying to grow them that have these core beliefs of being nice or being respectful, is a code of conduct good enough to perpetuate that? I mean, it's a guideline, but I feel like there's also something that has to be there's there's an extra step of people like actually being really clear to each other about what that what that means and what it means to be respectful what it means to be inviting even as as a as a human being into into these communities well i think losing track of why we do what we do whether that's a social thing or a technical thing is a huge risk generally and it's one reason why understanding the why it is of what we're doing is a big part of the communication cost that's just natural to all teams and all communities and when a team or community grows too fast, that stuff gets watered down or forgotten about. And that's why there's no curse greater than having having the hacker news roulette wheel of what's the most popular technology today uh, uh, land on you, uh, Node.js or React or whatever it is, means that now you're going to be inundated with so many people you can't possibly maintain whatever sort of cultural norms you thought were valuable. And you're just going to have all the rabble doing whatever human nature, you know, uh, dictates. That's one reason why I think I try to carve out like many sub-communities even within the larger ones wherever I'm at. So I have more control uh, and it's less dictated by just sort of the, the technology that I'm that I happen to be working in. What what are your like methods for doing that? Does that mean like just making friends and going to conferences or is it like more even more specific than that? Well, uh, it was helpful to start a company because we kind of act as our own community. You know, if you join Test Double, then you're in our Slack and Hangouts and stuff. And we can we all try to normalize, even though we're across like seven different projects. And so that's one reason why working at an agency can be really fulfilling. Uh, if I'm doing Node.js, I still write a lot of stuff in CoffeeScript, and that self-selects for a tiny little minority, you know? Like, uh, the majority of Node.js users will either be confused or irate uh, when they see my <laughs> stuff. And that's great, because I don't want to deal with 20,000 randos. I only want to deal with <laughs> with 30 randos. That's all I can handle. There's all sorts of, like, you know, very explicit and very implicit cues that we can use to indicate, you know, who we can cope with dealing with. Sure. <laughs> Mike was actually writing some coffee script this week, so we were talking about that and our uh, general opinions about it. I never wrote it before, but I I wanted to write an atom package, so they suggest that all and all the examples are in coffee script. So I wrote some coffee script. It was it was mostly pleasant. I don't really mind JavaScript as much. Well, I mean, I mind JavaScript, but it was funny to try to write it and it was actually a lot easier than i thought it was going to be i thought it was going to be really confusing but it ended up being really not not confusing at all and i pretty much just figured out how to do it by looking at coffeescript.com or whatever the coffeescript mm -hmm. website is um <laughs> it's probably not coffeescript.com but shout out to coffeescript.com who i just gave sent some uh web traffic to inadvertently <laughs> yeah. i like what i i think that uh i can identify with what you're saying about looking for subcultures within a culture, because I definitely tend to do the same thing. And I think that there's a, there's a personality type that 
uh, allows you to do that. Not everyone is not everyone is like that, or maybe it's a skill that you build up, right? At, at least when you're young and you're or when you're new to something, the tendency for a lot of people is like to jump into the thick of like whatever the they want to be a part of, like whatever the big crowd is. They want the two orders of magnitude more randos than you prefer, right. uh, and then right. may, maybe everyone goes in that direction first and then burns out a little bit and then withdraws, but you end up developing a taste for certain things based on the community of people that are involved in it, right? I mean, I think that that's a cool thing about, that's a cool thing about humans. And it's a funny thing that is, it's a funny idea actually that's alienated from a lot of technical communities because that's kind of anathema to a technical community, isn't it, right? The idea that you would choose tech based on a person like what like what <laughs> like what the fuck is wrong with you like that does not compute or whatever well, right when i was in college my computer science my first computer science professor told me to be wary of any college major that had the word science in it because it wasn't right yeah <laughs> i uh, i've always been really skeptical of anyone who teaches or preaches that software is you know, that there are these objective qualities to it that we really understand. It's still very new. Uh, all of our best wisdoms and advice about it change very frequently. Uh, I did this talk at RailsConf um, earlier this year called uh, Sometimes a Controller is Just a Controller. And the idea is, like, other than the functionality of code, which is relatively straightforward most of the time, all the other aspects of code, the communication and how we name things and how we try to convey our intent, uh, all of that's super duper subjective. And it'll never be objectively right. And so part of the benefit of finding your small community in your niche and normalizing with it and understanding it really well is you can move way faster. You don't have to worry about pleasing the general populace with uh, how you're communicating. If you can just communicate to the 20, 30 people that are in your you know, company uh, really, really well, then, then maybe that's good enough. And uh, it can definitely help overcome some of the inhibition that, that comes with being like, man, so-and-so on the internet isn't going to like how I'm doing this. Yeah. That's, there's definitely this theme that's been coming up a lot in my head and elsewhere as I've like done more and more consulting and working with all these other teams about this, the hacker news and everything, like just the general idea. If you just looked from the outside and were like, oh, what is today writing software about? What you would see as like a historian or anthropologist looking at it, you'd think that it was entirely about choosing frameworks, choosing technology, choosing languages, like picking your web host, whatever. Putting it but in like, a container, putting that yeah, container putting inside it, a container. Yeah, yeah, running running it on some sort of ship shipping device. I don't know. <laughs> But actually, it, like ninety nine point like nine nines of writing software is about people. No, like not just communication, not just like management, just like working with other people. Like that's that's like in there's no framework, no technology, no language is going to solve that for you. You know, some things might be easier. Some things might work better for you. But it's like the absurdity of how much time is spent talking about the things that are kind of completely irrelevant to our day job is just drives me nuts. That, that hypothetical anthropology thing is very real to me right now because my brother just recently um, decided he was halfway through med school and he decided that wasn't going to be for him. Uh, so he, he's actually looking for a job in software. And if anyone's interested in this and wants somebody who has has that 99.99% of social problems totally on lockdown. He's great at all that. He's just still working on the 0.01% of like becoming a good 
you know, beginner developer, take a chance on him because he's figured all that out. But that's the funny thing is he's like on his own trying to figure out like, okay, well, how do I teach myself to code? And what the world is telling you, like seeing it through his eyes was really uh, shocking to me because uh, it made me realize how, how small a pond I've been swimming in for so long that I have yeah. all these memes and, and assumptions about what it means to be even a junior developer. Like what? I think that I underestimated, you, I, you know, I've known Ruby had fallen out of favor a little bit in the in the sort of jet set crowd of, of, of new and trendy, but I was just surprised by how dominant the mean stack has become in terms of like what people will recommend as being your very first thing to build an app with, you know, mean stack standing for Mongo Express, Angular, and Node. Uh, so like first step, go install Node and NPM. Second step, get Yeoman. Third step, look at the 3,000 templates that Yeoman can generate for you. <laughs> and then... <laughs> and then spin a wheel and then pick one of them. And then you got a web sockets. And so it's just like, the, it's almost as if you took all of the complexity that we've built. Uh, and then you're telling beginners that, of course, this loosely assembled group of 500 little modules is exactly <laughs> where you need to start if you want to get anything done because frameworks are bad. You know, all the advice out there uh, that is uh, uh, maybe useful in some sort of highly contextualized environment is being spouted out as gospel right at this moment. And that just happens to be the ion cannon you're hit with uh, oh if you God. happen to be looking fresh at it. Wow. Yeah, it's scary. <laughs> to, going back to being the old man shaking, at a, shaking his fist at a cloud, like Mike and I are both very interested in this idea that in order for us to build a continue to have great people doing software, we need to be very aware and very, as as senior people in the industry, very careful about how we tell people to, how we build tools basically for beginners and how we like get people on board. And so the idea that we've, we've struggled with this idea now that when we were beginning, you know, sure there was a lot to learn, but this idea that you have to learn, you know, that, giant thousand level deep npm or or ruby or bundler stack of technologies just to just to get something on something up on the web is just a a frightening prospect to me and i don't know i don't know I don't aren't know you aren't you a full stack that. developer aaron i am i am yeah <laughs> full 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 stack i go i go i go front to back all the way to the voltage gates and, yeah uh... exactly it's just hard to to reason about, I think, and that's that's going to be more and more challenging, especially as more and more, like like you said, there's just so many people entering this industry now, and so it's it's kind of hard to think about like what that's going to look like three years from now, what what people are going to be working on. Twenty people are going to learn Mongo DB while we're recording this. <laughs> how many? We refer to the length. We refer to the length of the podcast as how many? How many Mongo DBs has it been since? <laughs> I think. Uh, I think a fucked up thing about this scenario that you, uh, we're describing is that I mean, again, it's really not a technology problem. It's a. It's a social problem where it's like what people think being a programmer is making websites or apps. And I think that that is really tragic because there's a lot of other cool kinds of software that aren't websites or apps that run on your phone or watch or tablet or whatever. Yeah, you forgot video games. That's the fifth kind of thing. Yeah, well, video game. Okay, but video video games are different. I mean, and it's very hard to make a video game. 
there are aspects of your first programming project being a video game that are considerably simpler and better as a choice than making a website or, a, or an app. The fact that people's first program that they want to build is, some, is something f that will run on an Apple product only is messed up for like a number of reasons, like man, at, man shaking fist at cloud reasons. But also, it's just kind of cruel, isn't it? Because like, then you learn like the person reviewing your app might be grumpy and they'll reject your app. Like all of this, like, it's just like, <laughs> I don't know, the whole, the whole thing just seems terrible. Like it doesn't give me any, I don't get any of the sense of that, that I, of like wonderment and excitement that I get, you know, that I recall getting when I was thinking about doing really simple things on my computer in my basement that were just like a thing I wanted to do that was like a thing I wanted to do. And we're, we're, we're robbing people of the simplicity of the simple joy of designing, writing an algorithm that like draws a cool picture in your, on your computer. And then like you print it out and show it to your brother or whatever. My, you know? Michael, I detect a, a kindred spirit because I've, uh, for a long time, ever since uh, I met my nephew, uh, you know, he's been interacting with iOS devices. He's like uh, 10 or 11 years old now. And to him, it's that Arthur C. Clarke quote comes to mind that like any sufficiently advanced technology is indiscernible from magic. To, so to him, like those layers and all the software and everything that I see when I look at it uh, is invisible to him. It's just irreducibly complex because it's so, so, so advanced. I feel like, I don't know how close all of us are in age, but I feel like the generation of people who've been doing uh, software for a while, who came up, came of age in the late 70s, mid 80s, it was sort of like the last era where everything was really starting to get cool and moving quickly, but was still simple enough to at least be understandable as a thing and, and reduced down into its component parts. Like when I got an NES as a kid, uh, and then, uh, you know, I could understand it well enough and how it was, how games were written for it well enough that when I got a Super Nintendo, I could translate. And, and a Nintendo 64, I could read up on and translate and figure out all the sort of stuff that was happening in computing along with it. Uh, so I was able to scaffold all this learning. And now I feel like it, it, it was a great generation to be in because I never had to completely just kind of give up this conceit of everything below me in the stack I will never quite understand until I spent years and years and years and years diving deep. Just enough of those bare wires were exposed to me that they were inviting to me to say like, hey, you know, you can come in and tinker with this. Whereas now in order to like open it up, you know, like Michael, you saying like, like it's a, in many cases, a walled garden, that sandbox that, you know, you, all of, all of the sharp edges have been rounded out. Uh, and you're just kind of given this very safe little API to to custom hooks that are in somebody else's playground as opposed to actually understanding how it was built in the first place, which is really depressing. Yeah, I, mean, I, I hate to I was going to say I hate to be like a conspiracy theorist, but if you replay this back, it kind of sounds like there's an industry that's been created to keep make it really hard and the distance between, you know, being a junior person or a person who wants to learn programming and be a programmer to being an expert programmer, the distance between that requires more and more money and more and more time and more and more privilege to enter that world. And that that is also funding some people in the Valley and some schools and other things to try to try to make that a place where like there's an industry around 
churning those people out and not it's not something that someone can really do on their own anymore, which is like kind of a sad uh, is kind of like the root of what we're saying and is kind of a sad thing or it's really challenging for someone to do on their own. So, yeah, that's just my, that's just me being really, really, really cynical. But um, I hope I hope that that's not completely true. But no, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of self-perpetuating. But it's also pop culture. I mean, you can't really it, it's 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 kind of a stupid thing to say, really, that I'm saying in a way. It's kind of like saying pop music sucks now because I don't like, you know, Drake or whatever. So I think all pop music is terrible. <laughs> but, you know, wasn't pop music better when the thing that I, I liked better was popular, right? I mean, like, <laughs> I think that's kind of what it is. So it, it, what I was going to say after that is that an, an encouraging thing that's happening is that computers are getting really, really fast and that's cool. And can, and they're get and a lot of them are getting really cheap and they're, and people will have access to small, cheap computers again. I don't know. I, I start to think people playing with microcontroller things and internet of the internet of things type things being popular and connected devices being cheap and easy to put together. I think there's an opportunity there for us to seize on making that popular and cool again. I mean, desktop software is, is cool enough, but if you're doing that, you might as well be making a website or an app, I guess, or whatever. I mean, the platform problem is a big is a big part of it. But one thing I wanted to mention is that at Strange Loop, Matthias Philiason, Fielson, Philiason, one of the creators of the of Racket, um, which is a Lisp dialect, he showed a really cool thing about using uh, using this Lisp programming language to teach programming to high school students. And the reason why you can do this really effectively is because Racket has a way to make executing. Uh, you can like write directly in math in in this like Lispy editor. So you can kind of like copy stuff from your math notebook, and it's a living, breathing equation inside this small system of Racket, which is like a totally open source thing. So I think Racket is an and and one reason I mentioned that is because I think Racket's a really cool example of if a lot of people poured a lot of energy into making Racket fast and cool and exciting and we're working on software for it it's it's a op, there are opportunities there to build up these cool and interesting communities again i don't know i i really want i really want people to be able to access that simplicity and it's really the same thing if you if you, if you read about like what john mccarthy thought of computing like by the time at the end of his life he was saying the same thing he's like yeah well you know I wrote I wrote Lisp for in you know IBM 704 assembler and it was like you know not very much assembler the whole hard the hard part was like my the whole like my life's work thing of like figuring out executing symbolic expressions that was the hard part implementing it was easy and then I made this playground but now all these systems are so big you can't keep all of them in your head and there's no tendency toward getting smaller and small is good. I think we I think we're coming up with like a theme for this episode, which is that small small is good. Small communities are good. Foster your small community. Com computation that is based on small a smaller number of instruction sets is good. Programs that run on a smaller number in a smaller number of places can be okay too. It's cool to make a program that doesn't have a .io web address. Um, if I do get it back into education, which I really want to in the next couple of years, I really want to try to figure out a way to 
make those small, uh, simple things really exciting and interesting again for kids. Yeah, I mean, when we when we complain, right, that uh, everything's an iOS app or everything's a big co- complicated web application, is very opaque and and the 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 lines are a little bit too neat and it's hard to understand all the complexity underneath it. We're not talking about it as because it's impossible to learn how things really work. We're talking about that because that's the popular way right now. Uh, And a lot of people are being robbed of maybe a richer, deeper exposure to the tinkering mindset and how to put stuff together. It's not to say it's impossible. It's just there's maybe fewer avenues to uh, take that same what I hope is for other people a very productive and enjoyable way to learn how stuff works talking about small things, you might have to carve out a, maybe somebody needs to write that book. (laughs) But what I'm seeing is like, Michael, you're talking about it like, uh, uh, when I see startups that are about uh, like, like, uh, jewel bots, uh, I was was trying to remember the name of that. That's a, that's a really cool example of that for sure. Yeah. Getting people really excited about like, Hey, here's these small little building blocks, little tiny microcomputers, totally understandable and how to build them together and and start learning the basics of logic uh without all of the this dependency hell underneath you yeah yeah that shit is scary it is little bits too is really cool that that company and that that stuff i would i'd love to talk to them yeah i have some of that yeah little bits is really cool i have the little i have their little synthesizer and my kids love playing with it it's really fun cool awesome we didn't get to talk about food but that's that's okay (laughs) we talked about other other potentially more important stuff yeah, we'll have to do a, um, uh, uh, I just traveled Japan for a month and I'm a Japanese cuisine snob, uh, which, uh, uh I mentioned in the email <laughs> before, we, before we met up. So we'll have to do another episode on just that. How do you deal with that living in Columbus, Ohio? Oh, so I will have, you know, that, uh, <laughs> Honda has, uh, I think it's biggest U S presence in central Ohio. Okay. Uh, so I actually, I live in a neighborhood of like predominantly Japanese uh, American immigrants or people here just temporarily because they work for Honda. So we've got like a little Japan town and everything and lots of great food, uh, great grocery. Uh, and I'm still like I speak some Japanese, but I'm way too shy to practice it when I'm stateside because <laughs> I don't want to be freaking people out. But one day I'm going to muster the courage to find a conversation partner. I like Columbus. (laughs) That's awesome. I had no idea that there was a Japanese community there. That's really cool. Recently, actually, like two weeks ago, I went. There's this really cool Japanese supermarket and food court in the Palisades in New Jersey, like right across the river from Manhattan. That's awesome and very, very worth going to. But it's been there for a while, but I had no idea until recently. And so oh, called yeah. Mitsuo Marketplace. Mitsuo Mar- you never went there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'd never gone there before. Yeah, there's a, yeah. There's, there's a Mitsuo Market in Arlington Heights, Illinois as, as well. It's a fun, fun little place to explore products. And plus Columbus has the greatest ice cream on the planet, so... Are you talking about graters or Jenny's? I like, I don't know graters. I was talking about Jenny's. Yeah, Jenny's is great uh, if you like creative flavors, and graters is great if you want to fall asleep quickly. (laughs) (laughs) Jenny's not the tightest packed, highest calorie ice cream that I've ever had. It's amazing. They're both good. We we alternate. All right. Well, thanks, Justin, for joining us. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been another episode of Beats, Riot, and Types. We will have some more information for you on our website <laughs> that we handcrafted on a microcomputer. 
It's running on a server. Programming, programming. It's running on a server powered by hamsters in my backyard. It's made out of thirty thousand jewel bots. It is. It's It's actually running on. It's actually running on GitHub because we don't want to host it ourselves. Its functionality is highly dependent on atmospheric conditions. So we we thank you for your patience on that. And if you're trying to load the website and it's not working, just wait for the sky to clear up. And uh, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. (laughs) Bye.